Thanks for tuning in again to the Home Gastronomics Podcast, where we bring the professional chef into your home kitchen. This episode, we're going to follow up on last episode, talking about elevating burgers and what one chef is doing to give you some ideas. We're also going to chat some about other chefs' podcasts and what exactly a food trend is as we get into a new feature where we try to discuss food trends that you can experience at home. Also, it would be awesome if some of you fantastic listeners can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Drop us a like on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play to help us grow and get more attention. Lastly, it would be sweet of you to consider becoming a patron with a small monthly donation to keep this thing rolling forward. Check out the show notes for all the show links. Thanks! Greetings, Padawans. It's been a busy little bit of time that has kept me away, but now we're getting back on track. I want to talk a little bit more about our last episode and discuss some ways that others are elevating burgers, as this has become a real trend that you can see in the industry with places like Five Guys, Smash Burger, or similar restaurants popping up into the middle range of the market. On the higher end, you have some celebrity or well-known chefs throwing their hat into the gourmet burger movement as well. One such example is Chef Hubert Keller. He's a well-known classical French chef who opened a restaurant called Burger Bar located inside Mandalay Bay Resort in Las Vegas. If you follow us on Instagram and Twitter, you will recall the posts and photos from early March when we visited Burger Bar. The atmosphere in Burger Bar was very comfortable. It was a busy night that we stopped by, but there was still ample room to get around the tables without bumping people, and the booths were large enough to accommodate our large party. The menu was laid out as most menus are, with the standard fare of classy chicken sandwiches, pastas, and fish fillets found in the later pages. The real gem was the pages of burgers that you would expect from a burger joint. Of course, we're not talking about any regular old burgers here. The first thing that was brought to my attention was a whole page dedicated to a build-your-own burger, which allowed you to concoct whatever your fancy desires from their selection of options. Of course, all of the burgers include tomatoes, onions, lettuce, which turned out to be iceberg, and a dill pickle spear. If you remember from last episode, we discussed the options for your grind when making burgers. Chef Keller, like many others, takes it a step further, with a selection including black Angus beef, Australian lamb, buffalo, and Kobe Wagyu. There is even a veggie burger option, or you can choose to get a chicken breast if you prefer no red meat. The build-your-own prices start at $12.50 for the black Angus and go up to eighteen twenty-five, starting for the Kobe. As you build more onto it, add some sides, add some toppings, it goes up from there. The next step they offer is choosing your bun, which we also said was a vital step in elevating your burger. They offer plain buns, but also have ciabatta, kaiser, sesame, and pretzel buns. Moving on to your toppings. Burger Bar breaks it down into categories like the garden, the dairy, the farm, the earth, and such, each category having ingredients that 
basically come from there. The dairy, for instance, refers to the cheese selection. The choices here include the common cheddar, American, Swiss, and provolone, but also includes the more exotic blue cheese and brie. Other options are baby spinach, sprouts, or avocado from the garden, and a selection of grilled items from peppers and onions to grilled pineapple. They have bacon, a fried egg, three shrimp, or pan-seared foie gras, only an additional $18, and black truffles, which is an additional $30. To top it all off, you can add spicy ketchup, pesto sauce, guacamole, chipotle aioli, truffle mayo, or a house specialty called hangover sauce. I didn't get to investigate that one further. The real burger elevation comes if you wanted to order the red wine and shallot reduction or the black Paragord truffle sauce for your sandwich. There are even options to go on the side of your meal. You can choose from skinny fries, fat fries, or sweet potato fries. Coleslaw, zucchini fries, tater tots, or the house specialty truffle fries and garlic fries, which is also available as an appetizer, which we chose to get. There is a page that was dedicated to the Chef's Burgers, which were the signature compilations of Burger Bar. These are truly some elevated burgers, slightly more geared towards the audience that might prefer someone else's creativity. Let's touch on a couple of those. They have a Parisian lamb burger made with a 50-50 mix of Angus and their Australian lamb mixed with Moroccan spices and tzatziki sauce, served on a French baguette. Their namesake, the Hubert Keller Burger, comes with buffalo meat, caramelized onions, baby spinach, and blue cheese on ciabatta. It is, of course, served with Chef Keller's red wine and shallot reduction. Lastly is the gold mine of a burger. At $65, the Rossini is Kobe Wagyu beef, sautéed foie gras, and shaved truffles on an onion bun with the Paragord truffle sauce. Now, $65 sounds like a lot for a burger, but when you look at those shaved truffles and the foie gras, which are both pretty pricey things, it's a fantastic-sounding burger. They even have a dessert burger made from a warm donut, Nutella mousse, passion fruit gelée, and fresh strawberries and kiwi. I didn't get to try that one since my other burger was so filling, but it sounds delicious, doesn't it? Hopefully, that got some of your creative juices flowing. Personally, I can't wait to make a trip back to Burger Bar for another food adventure, and to try the dessert burger and one of the amazing-looking milkshakes that they sold. Now let's talk about something that affects everything in the food chain, from commercial suppliers, local groceries, professional chefs, and even all of the home cooks listening to us here. Of course, we're going to hit on the topic of food trends and food fads. First off, what the heck are these things? 
A food trend is a general direction in which the food world is moving towards a permanent shift. They can be local, regional, or national, sometimes being embedded in culture for years before the next thing comes along. A good example of some past food trends includes fondue. Coming into the scene at the 1964 World's Fair in New York and really gaining momentum in the 70s, it is still holding on today with a few fondue restaurants that you can find around and fondue sets still being an occasional wedding gift. Anyone that enjoys their local buffet also knows that you can find a chocolate fondue fountain there. It's interesting to note that cheese fondue has been around in Switzerland since the 1700s, while chocolate fondue is an American creation. Next, molten chocolate cake, a definite favorite that immediately spawns images of upscale and high class. This dessert was originally served in 1987 New York chef Jean-George von Gerichten's restaurant Jojo. By the time a few months had passed, many famous chefs were offering versions of their own. In 1998, Chili's put a molten chocolate cake on their menu, and it remains there today. Vegetarianism and veganism followed the healthy diet movement as a perception came into being that red meats or the use of antibiotics and hormones used in livestock had some unhealthy side effects on humans. It later came to light that some struggles occurred with these alternative lifestyles regarding meeting the FDA-recommended guidelines for required daily nutrients. This caused a slight dip in the popularity of these options, and a everything-in-moderation belief was accepted. The plant-based trend has made a comeback, with concerns about animal welfare and a desire to eat in a way that avoids excessive use of the environment's resources. Many meat alternatives can be found now, some with great flavor and nutritional value. It's not all salad and veggie pastas anymore. Sustainability has become a big trend in the past years, and currently, where a focus has been put on farming that meets our current needs but doesn't negatively impact the integrity of future generations to meet their own needs. It's based on a better understanding of ecosystems and the relationship between organisms and the environment. Agriculture tries practices that do not deplete the nutrients in the soil, but rather work with natural processes such as composting and diversifying crops. Another large area focusing on sustainability is in fisheries, where seasonal harvesting and a change in practices are allowing fishermen to simultaneously harvest and maintain fish populations. In comparison, a food fad, on the other hand, has no influence on the direction things are moving and only lasts a brief period of time before falling off the map, usually to never be heard from again. Sometimes you could just call it a flavor of the week. Some fads that you may actually know of include that orange drink mix, Tang, and other space food like vacuum-packed ice cream. While Tang was not designed for the space program, advertising certainly made it into an astronaut food, so everything space-themed became a craze during the beginning of the program in the late 60s and 70s. Then there always seems to be 
a latest fad diet that is sweeping the nation from Adkins to paleo and keto. The common denominator among them all is often promises of a quick fix with lists of good foods and bad foods and elimination of any of the five recognized basic food groups. When people who do deal with weight issues or want to lose that little bit of extra for bathing suit season realize that it is a temporary solution that brings the lost weight back quickly when you stop the practices, they tend to jump ship right into the next fad diet that comes along. You can also reflect the passing fad diets into the more common flavored or specialty coffee. It seems every time you turn around, as one flavored latte fades from existence, at least until next year, there is always a new one to take its place in every coffee shop that you can see. Lastly, fat-free food became a benchmark for the healthy diet movement, another trend, in the early 90s. With snack companies pushing the advertising and potato chips trying alternative cooking methods from oil substitutes to baked chips instead of fried. The fat-free trend has faded as science found out more information about some of the alternatives and food interactions in the body. The healthy diet movement is still hanging on, with people making better choices and reading labels and understanding what the ingredients and nutritional value means. Fads are fun to play with, as many of them are flavorful or exciting to actually do. What is really cool, though, is trends. At home, you can be on top of the latest trends and have your family think you're a real innovator simply by paying attention to things. You can look at what is the latest on menus of your favorite restaurants, or even what the latest commercials for restaurants are showing. Is there some new technique or gadget that you hear a lot of people getting enthusiastic about? And I'm not talking Ronco here. What's going on in social media? Or what are those high-profile chefs talking about? If you really want to know, you can find many of those chefs on Twitter, Instagram, and even Facebook and see exactly what they're bringing up. One of my favorites, Gordon Ramsay, has a Twitter account and an Instagram account. and He will regularly post things from different restaurants that he visits or from his restaurants. And you can see what he's working on. That might be the next trend coming along. So, I've been searching a number of other podcasts in the interest of networking and finding like minds. What's been very interesting is that most of the podcasts I've found are either industry professionals designing their show to a target audience of other industry professionals or designed for a target audience of homemakers and focusing on gardening and home care in addition to just recipes. This is not to downplay the quality of these shows. A lot of them are really good. It all depends on what your interest or goal is. For my show, I want to try and bring a mix of some of these. I want to take the knowledge of the industry professional and share it on a level that someone who is not in the industry can understand. Sharing some recipes is nice, but the one thing I learned from culinary school is that it's so much more fun and rewarding to understand how food goes together to be able to create something without using a recipe. 
Personally, I feel that following recipes too much locks you into stifling creativity. Amusingly, recipes are a vital requirement in the professional kitchen. They maintain quality standards and consistency, as well as manage and control costs. I do own a number of recipe books for some classical recipes, as well as inspiration, where I can tweak the recipes. There are also some family recipes that I will follow to the letter every single time. If I didn't, my mom might kill me. To this goal, I do want to share some recipes. But even more, I want to help you learn about food, how food goes together and interacts with other things, and of course, why it does the things it does. Science is fascinating. I love it especially when you get into understanding something as simple as a vinaigrette salad dressing. How it works and why it works that way. From then on, instead of buying some of Paul Newman's best from the grocery store, you'll flex your creative juices and come up with all kinds of flavors and creations for your very own vinaigrettes that your family will love. Let's talk about that a little bit further. We'll call it a field trip. Vinaigrettes, in the simplest terms, are an acid and a fat. Most often, vinegar and oil mixed together. Of course, these two things don't want to be mixed together. So when you mix them, it's called an emulsion. Emulsions are touchy things. If all you do is just put some vinegar and oil into a bottle together, they'll sit there with the oil floating on top of the vinegar. Shake it up! and you create the emulsion where small droplets of the vinegar are suspended in the oil, creating the vinaigrette. This mix, left to its own devices, will drift apart like the parents in that one movie that we all saw. To solve this, we need to add a little oomph to create the parent trap of the food world. We'll get this oomph from something called an emulsifier, which is friendly with both the fat and the acid and kind of pulls them together. You'll find mustard, especially Dijon, used in a lot of vinaigrettes as an emulsifier. Another one that I've found works really well is honey. Of course, these aren't the only ones out there. There's a lot of them that are available that have names that are a mile long, but do a pretty good job of what they're trying to do. So now we know our basic vinaigrette is going to be vinegar, oil, Dijon mustard, and salt and pepper. We can't forget to season it after all. I can hear you asking now, how much of each should we use, chef? Here's the wonderful thing about it. It's up to you and the flavor you're trying to get. A very traditional recipe uses a three-to-one ratio of oil to vinegar and about a teaspoon of Dijon per cup. If you wanted a little more vinegar-like flavor, you could adjust that ratio to 50-50 or even reversing it. If you wanted something that had a little more mouthfeel to it, kind of stick to the roof of your mouth, up the oil a little bit and reduce the vinegar. What kind of vinegar you use is up to you as well. The basic vinaigrette will commonly use red wine vinegar. If you don't want any color affected, you might want to use white wine vinegar, which is different from distilled white vinegar. There's also apple cider vinegar if you want a little bit of a fruity taste. 
If you were trying to do an Asian-style dressing, maybe you would think about using rice wine vinegar and a touch of sesame oil. You do need to think about what all you are putting in to the dressing. Let's say you are trying to create a citrus Asian dressing using orange juice and sesame oil for the flavor. Orange juice is an acid, but on its own might not give the right flavor or might be way too overpowering or sweet. You would adjust the amount of vinegar to accommodate the addition of another acid. Same goes for the sesame oil, which is incredibly thick and strong when compared to olive oil or vegetable oil, slightly more neutral. You would want to add a touch of the sesame oil and reduce the amount of other oil to accommodate for the additional fat. You end up staying with the 3 to 1 ratio, you're just adding more ingredients. This should give you some basis for a vinaigrette that you can take and let your creativity run with. Drop us an email at chef at homegastronomics.com, a message by Facebook, or even tweet us how it goes, and we can share it in future episodes. This episode's word of the day is purely to expose all of you to something possibly new that you've never seen before. We're going to talk about empanadas. The name empanada comes from the Spanish word empanar, which means to bake in pastry. They're usually single-serving turnovers of a pastry crust with a savory filling of meat and vegetables. However, you can find them filled with fruit or sweets and served as a dessert. Empanadas range in size from large enough to feed an entire family, the empanada gallega, to small ravioli-sized bites, empanaditas. Many cultures have similar specialties, such as British pasties and meat pies, beef patties of Jamaica and the Caribbean, Arabic samosas, and even Italian calzones, as well as variations in South America and the Philippines. The variation you find is in the exact makeup of the dough and the composition of the filling. They can be baked or fried. Some dough is flaky, while others are a moisture, mealy kind of dough. In Belize, they are made with masa, or corn dough. Beef or chicken are common fillings, spiced with cumin and paprika in Spanish culture, while other cultures have their own regional spices. A 1520 Spanish cookbook lists fillings of fish and other seafood. They can also include onions, ham, spinach, raisins, or potatoes. Now that you know a little bit about this amazing finger food, keep an eye out for small shops or carts, selling them in your local cultural centers, and enjoy a big bite full of amazingness. I wanted to touch on a few sections of the podcast that I'd really like to get rolling. This first section is going to be dedicated for patron shoutouts. Podbean has a pretty amazing patron program set up that is super easy to use. The whole basis of it, for those who aren't familiar with patronage, 
is that a small monthly donation can help pay for the costs of the podcast and keep us on the air for your enjoyment. You can find our patron page at patron.podbean.com slash home gastronomics. There are a bunch of options for what level you want to support us. Of course, the higher the level, the higher the reward. As a thank you for all of our patrons, I'll give you a shout-out here when someone donates. Just a small bit of word fame for your support. Some of the other rewards include various ways that you can contribute to the show or get a little bit more out of the show, like deciding a topic, private consultation and instruction, and even getting your custom intro or message as part of our show. Add on to this that there are a few benchmark goals that are set up. When those goals are reached, I've got some special rewards in mind as well. Even more reason to become a patron and help us reach those goals. Overall, words can't even express my appreciation for everyone considering becoming a patron. Thanks to all of you. This next section is intended to be a quick-fire audience participation. If you've had some burning desire to know exactly how to scald milk, or how to tell that a sauce is the right consistency, or anything food, cooking, or hospitality industry related, shoot it to us and it will get added here with an answer. Some questions are really popular and take more than a quick-fire answer can give. So those may blow up into full episodes that you can fully take credit for, right after I give that credit to you. For this, you can get your question to us however you feel is best. Email, message, contact us on the website, even record a message and send that to us. I promise you'll hear yourself asking your question. I want to do this show, but I want to do it for you. So obviously, I want you all to participate and help to make this show even better. Don't be scared. All of our contact information is in the show notes and on the website. I challenge you, bring it on. And thanks. That wraps up this episode, folks. One last thing. Remember to check out our website and blog at www.homegastronomics.com. You can also find us at Home Gastronomics on Facebook, on Twitter at the Chef Chewy, that's C-H-E-W-I-E, and Home Gastronomics on Instagram. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and on Spotify. It would be awesome if you were to give us a like and a review in your preferred podcast purveyor. If we're not on your preferred source, let us know and we'll work on getting there. We'll be getting back on track now that life has stopped dropping bombs on me. So we'll see you in one month. Thanks for listening, guys. (laughs) 